There can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program, so please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing, or pop on some headphones, and that way no one can get offended but you. We don't talk about it, we don't shake it up, it will continue. You can't have change just on one level. Being silenced is just not okay. When you're talking about violence against women and children, the people in the room who are most uncomfortable negotiating it are perpetrators. So there's a lot of power in what we're doing. You'll be causing discomfort to the people who probably need it. You're listening to a presentation of the 2018 Feminist Writers Festival podcast. Proudly brought to you by Rights for Women with Pamela Cook and Kel Butler. Hey Pam, finally, finally I get to bring you this episode on writing violence and writing change from the Feminist Writers Festival earlier this year. This one has been a long time coming. It has, Kel. It has. Um, you've had a fair bit on your plate. Uh, so, But I'm really, really interested in this episode. I think it's um, going to be a, a real um, eye-opener in terms of what was discussed at the festival. Yeah, this one has a panel uh, chaired by Jesamy Gleeson and with Tara Moss and Tasneem Chopra. Now, we had a little problem with this one, which is also part of the reason it took me a little while to get it out. Uh, it, one of the SD cards corrupted and we lost a whole chunk of the actual panel, which was heartbreaking for me because it was such mm. a great session. But what we did manage to get was actually the entire Q&A for the session, which is was just as meaty, if not meatier than the panel itself, and took up more than half of the entire session. I also did an interview while I was down at Melbourne with Jesamy Gleeson and Van Batten because Jesamy is also Van Batten's manager. So she manages all of her life, basically. I <laughs> so, need a person like that. Yeah. <laughs> and the trigger for me actually approaching the Feminist Writers Festival in the first place to see if they wanted someone to podcast the event was actually my, my reaching out to Jessamy to see if I could interview herself and Van Badham for the Rights for Women podcast. And Jessamy was was talking about the Feminist Writers Festival and the fact that she was going to be participating in the event. And she suggested that I potentially put my hand up that we you know, cover the event and do the podcast. So I did that. And that's how we ended up covering the Feminist Writers Festival. It was actually mm. all as a direct result of wanting to interview Jessamy and Van. Mm. So this is like a full circle episode. It really is. It really, really is. So what we've got is the Q&A from the session Writing Violence, Writing Change. And then we've got the interview, which only runs for about 20 minutes to half an hour um, with Van and Jessamy. Uh, and uh, they go together really well because in that interview they actually talk about their activism, their feminism, what spurned both and what drives them and I find that really relevant. Mm, sounds good. Can't wait to hear it. <laughs> Bringing it to you now. I wanted to get to what, um, you know, was advertised in here, but, and it's one of my favourite topics, which is hashtags, and in particular, mm. the labour that goes on when we're writing about violence in online environments and we're talking about, you know, Me Too and that, that kind of work. What are the expectations that we have 
then of people that are sharing their stories online and where the boundaries are again different and blurred and people are participating, how, how can you envision that working well versus maybe not working so well? Because there have been critiques mm. on both, you know, both for and against me too and it's not perfect. Can mm. I just say Harvey Weinstein's in custody? Yeah. Mm. Like, can we just yeah. give a shout out to those mm. over 70, over 70 brave women? who spoke out against an incredibly, incredibly powerful individual mm. who had, and in some cases did, ruin careers mm. based on his own agenda and covering himself up. So huge celebration of the little wins. Lots yeah. of problems there, but yeah. he's in custody. There's something happening, and we would not be there without all of those women, yeah. all of those women, right? So me too. Yeah, pretty amazing, pretty powerful, but yeah, pretty imperfect. Mm. Yeah. No support for those individual people, and they also, a lot of them beforehand, weren't getting any support either, so mm. it's not new for them. But yeah, when you write something in a tweet, you know, there's no one there to go, all right, are you okay? Are you, yes. are you like literally physically safe? You know, mm. um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting time because that, none of that movement would have been remotely necessary had the legal system and criminal justice system been operating correctly. Mm. When I say correctly, I mean like, like with law and like, you know, criminal Actually, stuff, I'm not sure. good, yeah. let's take you into custody. Mm -hmm. It just had been failing mm. so many people for so long. That's why we've seen this. But there's an enormous amount of, um, you know, complication with mm. the way that this mm. is unfolding, of course. Yeah. yeah. I would take the view, yeah, it's been, it, I think Me Too has put it on the map, mm. but mm. as an issue, I think it has predated, um, oh, yeah. certainly. Mm, yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Hollywood and the, and the director's couch. And I think, for me, it's like, then also then giving voice to the other forms of sexual harassment, exploitation, abuse that have occurred. Um, for women in all dimensions, both in mm. workplaces as art workers, as foreign workers, um, as you know, in women in, in sexual in sexual industry as well. So, th I think there's a far broader issue of mm. how do we recognise the ongoing and systemic trauma that women have experienced mm. that's not just related to this particular movement and what's been done about that, mm. Mm. and how much. While this movement is effective, and yeah, it's it's gone from being as Tracy Spicer said, you know, Me Too is not just the it's not just the move, moment; it's the movement that, mm. that comes with it, and I think that that's really really powerful. But for me, it's really about understanding and contextualizing the breadth of this movement is far beyond the, the what I call the Hollywood hashtag. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, I mean, not just what's happening in Australia's media industry either, but um, from reports that we're hearing, even about you know. Just yesterday, I read a really gruesome report about detailed abuses of Bangladeshi um, mm. expat workers in Saudi Arabia, for example, and how no official there has ever been held account for the, the kind of abuse and the regular torture and rape and um, detaining that they've impacted on their workers and their staff there. And they're fleeing in droves back to Bangladesh and the UN can't even deal with the amount of complaints that they're getting. That's there. That's that case. Mm. Um, we're not even looking and talking about you know, the experiences, I think, of the Indigenous women in this country um, and what they've endured at the hands of the state and what's going on and still goes on with stolen generation mm. and kids. So I think it's... I'm, while I'm not 
um, disappointed Me Too has happened. I'm sceptical about the way that people look at this as the moment that defines this issue that has just come up now, because mm. it hasn't. Yeah. There's been a lot of work done on hashtags. Like, there's a lot of work that's been done on hashtags online and offline to get us to this point of yeah, me and too, I, yeah. I think. And I, and I would, yeah. you know, I would even go further to say the experience of women um, who don't have a voice in this, yeah, and this who aren't even debate are far greater victims of that, of that um and I think that was the Tarana Burke's intention 10 years yes. before the hashtag went yes. viral. You know, yeah. she was, she's an African-American woman. Mm. She is talking about people who don't necessarily have that voice or don't have, so many of us have voices, but whether they're being heard, I guess, is the mm. question. Mm. And she was talking about people who did, weren't being heard. And um, so I guess I see the hashtag as something much broader than just about Hollywood. Yeah. But yeah, it becomes, what, what is the focus? The focus becomes the people can, who can be heard the most. Yeah. And this is the most high, high profile when you start involving um, women whose names we recognize because they're mm -hmm. actresses and they're on the cover of magazines. We're going to hear their stories more. Um, but it's incredibly important to acknowledge all the women whose stories we aren't hearing. And I think that was one of the powerful aspects of Me Too was just all the regular people who started Mm. saying, yeah, I work in the service industry and this is what happened to yeah. me. Or this was yeah. that school teacher and what they did. And, yeah. you know, just how, mm. what an epidemic this has been and continues to be. I think Maxine Venable-Clark, she treated something very brilliantly on this um, a few months back and she said of the Me Too movement that the women who were attending the march for the Me Too movement had their... Uh, domestic staff at home. And these domestic staff at home were hoping that those women would come home before their husbands came home mm. earlier. And mm. that put to me, me too in a lot of context. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But she said it a lot better than that. But. <laughs> in 100 yeah. letters or something, whatever. And the voices that, yeah, as you've said, just aren't being heard online. We tend to think particularly here that everyone is online and it's, that's not always the case at all. Not everyone exists online. Not everyone has the capacity to be involved in Me Too or other hashtags that have come before that. Or has access to the devices access, yeah. or exactly. even the freedom in their country to tweet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. let alone access, yeah, access to platforms in which change can be created. So it's not it's not universal at all. Nothing's perfect. I want to tear down the notion of you know a perfect feminist, a perfect feminist movement, perfect feminist hashtag, but and have critique that's actually effective as opposed to just critique for the sake of I'm a better feminist than you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. One thing I'm really interested in in relation to this question of agency within um, you know telling stories around violence against women mm. is the extent to which the legal system serves to strip women of that agency yeah. in the way that uh, sexual violence particularly um, or violence against women broadly is dealt with by the system. They're the mm. only person within the system that doesn't get mm. representation or, mm -hmm. or the capacity to control their mm. own narrative. Mm. And I guess um, I'm interested because you probably deal with this in relation to crime writing but yeah. it flows on to so much of the other the legitimisation of the way that that's been handled broadly because of the power of the system. I wonder if you could speak to that. In my novels, I admit I tend not to um, make them into legal thrillers. They tend to be a little more leaning towards the vigilante <laughs> area. And I guess I, I guess I feel that's relevant because the system lets 
these people down. So I imagine, who is this woman who survives this and what does mm. she do? And in the case of Mac Vanderwall through that six novel series, you know, she uh, does herself become violent. As we see with things like the girl with the dragon tattoo and things like that. So, you know, I'm not saying this is the way to handle it. I'm saying that this is some, like, uh, it appeared to be cathartic for some of the readers and for me as the writer in some respects. Um, and I can't count the number of completely awesome, particularly women and girls, but also boys who've read the books and said, you know, this helped me get through high school. Like, I had some really difficult experiences, and I read Mac, and it made me feel like I could do anything, you know? And like, screw them all, I'm coming, look out, you know? So there's a place for that. Um, it's not a blueprint for how to handle criminal cases. Um, <laughs> but it has a place in the genre, and has a place in storytelling. And, and um, that, uh, so from that perspective, as a legal drama, it would just be really chaotic um, if I was in charge because yeah. it'd be like, this is all taking too long. This is not good enough for justice. We're yep. busting out. We're busting out of here and doing it our own way. Um, yeah, not the way to, don't try this at home. <laughs> but um, that's, that is how I've tended to, to handle it in my novels. Mm. Yeah, look, I think it's straight, a, Victorian, I can, a Victorian legal system, coming back to you know, how is, is the legal system here, representing the experiences of survivors. I mean, there's been small gains. Mm. Um, I, I can't, we can't overlook those. But I think you talk about structural, um, I won't say misogyny, but patriarchal structures mm. within a system are always going to have women on the back foot, regardless of how much progress we do make. Um, just looking at numbers of female, you know, barristers, female judges, female, you know, mm. um, yeah. The judiciary in general and the gender balance within that speaks a lot to where final legislation lies as well. So I think small gains, but a long, long way to go. In New South Wales, this is an interesting historical tidbit I came across the other day in my novel um, research. In New South Wales, it wasn't until 1946 that women were allowed to sit on juries. Mm. So think of the, how that works in the context of being a survivor. Yes. A survivor, or perhaps you haven't survived the violence against you. Mm. Who gets to decide what happened mm. and what should be done about it? You know, women were completely excluded from from that legal process. So, you know, there's a long history that's going to take a long time yeah. to get yeah. things structural across the board. Um, and forget Indigenous women. Yeah. You know, at that point, I think you could. Um, uh, you could be admitted as a lawyer by then, interestingly, but we still didn't have female jurors. Mm -hmm. um, but again, only if you were a white woman. Yeah, so I, yeah I've come off the back of reading three or four weeks of case law and I am exhausted. I've been looking at image-based abuse and it, it, um, content note, it often um, involves, we've been looking at underage image-based abuse as well. So there's been child abuse material that has been covered in case law. I've come off the back of two readings about that. I am wiped. Um, and sitting at that intersection of, you know, academia and we're going to write research or we're and in criminology we're going to re make recommendations for laws and then as an activist just wanting to tear the whole thing down. Mm. It's this weird intersection for me of being like, mm. well, let's look at the laws and see how we can change them and do all that kind of nice stuff, but it's so slow yeah. moving. Yeah. And then on the other stage being like, let's just have a march. Let's just get up there and 
and scream down Swanson Street and see what happens that way. So I don't have an answer. I'm quite happy to be in both worlds because um, one of the outcomes of my research has been you can't have change just on one level. You can never just rely on patriarchal systems to make that change for you. But you also, and um, unless you want to burn it all down and start again, which I do, activism can help too. Activism, things like slut walk, that kind of stuff. These places all help as well in making that change. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, I'm writing about uh, oppression of women in Islam. Mm. And um, I have been abused, raped, and all of those things happened, but they were made right by saying, oh, God permitted me to do that. And that was not necessarily um, done sort of, uh, you know, there are men who is saying, oh, God has said that it's okay because a woman must do this and that. Um, so through my writing, I'm obviously my language is even though respectful, but quite provocative. And the only example I have is uh, in Fidel and Aya and Hersieli and what happened with the submission and the rest of the stuff. So I'm afraid a little bit uh, about what I'm getting myself into and uh, um, I just wanted your thoughts and the resources in terms of are there any women in Australia who are writing this particular form of religious violence and violence made right in the name of Islam? And if you had any thoughts about how I could um, you know, get support, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So yeah. that was my question. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Tasneem, do you yeah. have um, yeah. any particular resources? Sure. Um, so, well, I'm, I'm so sorry about what you've just gone mm. through, first of all. Um, second of all, in terms of religious violence, um, the organisation that I'm, I'm chairing, the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights, that recognises religious violence occurs and that men will use and contort religion in order to justify abuse of women as an extension of how family violence is, is understood and consumed within the community. Um, that said, the understanding of my understanding and the understanding that the organisation takes is there is no justification for, for violence or abuse in Islam. So when it is actually done, it is done to service the, the need and the, the justification for the man as opposed to being a, you know, an edict of the faith which we do not see that as it, as it is. So certainly within different cultures and the interpretations, that people will twist it around. It does happen. Um, but there are strong, strong movements of, I guess, female scholars and female intellects within Islamic frameworks who would argue against that and have successfully argued against it to the point where rape in marriage is considered rape now in parts of the Middle East. Yeah, it's actually <laughs> Tunisia. It's, you know, there's some really progressive scholarship that's actually happening on this issue in other countries. Um, it doesn't deter it from still happening within this country as a practice, and it has to be called out, and it has to be named. And it is violence, and it is a crime, and it is not justified in Islam at all. But people will, will claim that it is. It's a defence, obviously, that they're going to try to whip up. Um, but to the best of my experience, and I'm happy to share some resources with you afterwards, um, this, is not, this is not, it's not cricket. It's not, it's, not, it's not cricket. I'm trying to find the right <laughs> word. It's not acceptable and it's not condoned. Mm. No. I'm really sorry to hear what you have been through and I wanted to um, acknowledge that but also say that what you're doing is very brave. Mm. And also, um, on a related note, it's not the same thing but it strikes me as having so many parallels with the Royal Commission and the comments there about yeah. 
you know, God made me be a pedophile. Abuse is it's the abuse of power and every excuse, every excuse. Everything except identifying the perpetrator and it's their actual actions. Please look after yourself. Uh, My name is Roz, and I was just going to make a small comment about the women that are invisible. I work in mental health and have for many years, Mm -hmm. and so my experience every day is working with women where the trauma becomes invisible under borderline personality disorder or complex Mm -hmm. depression or PTSD, and so epidemic, as you say. So um, I'm kind of uh, acquainted with that every day, and uh, and often Mm. sometimes with male psychiatrists that you know, pathologise and etc. So, um, so my um, question is that I'm currently about to write a memoir. I'm a survivor of domestic violence from many years ago where I had to flee for my life uh, in New Zealand before there was consciousness raising about it. And um, I've just started, I guess, to put my voice out there and be bolder um, and courage to speak about such things. Um, I've uh, performed in a play last year where I openly talked about um, my experience as a battered wife, as we were known in those days, many years ago. But what I find myself doing in myself is, and other people may relate to this, I go between um, finding courage to do this, then also being apologetic about confronting material. And I'm just wondering if you can comment on that. Mm. Tara. Well, thank thank you for sharing your story and um, being so brave. And again, I want to say, like, people who come out and speak about this stuff are incredibly brave. It's personal and it's, you know, it's, I'm going to say it is risky and it's, you know, takes a lot of bravery, but it's also not for everyone. Not everyone is in a position to do so, particularly at a, a specific time. But I, oh gosh, I've lost my train of thought there. I, it, it's just such a, it's such a huge thing. Things have changed so much, but there's more to come. Um, and don't, don't let that deeply ingrained thing about women who speak up being troublemakers, mm. don't let that, don't even let don't that let land yeah. on you. Don't just let it, mm. let it, it yeah, we, we all have this because we, none of us lives in a vacuum and we absorb all of these biases. I'm myself also. But just don't let that land on you. Don't let it be there, you know. Or just go, okay, I'm getting that. That's, that's not relevant. And push it away. And, and I try to remind myself of that as well. You know, if I'm talking about something and I see that it's making, frankly, the right people uncomfortable. Yeah, um, exactly. I'll go, I'll go, no, I'm not going to edit myself for their, you know, comfort levels because they just think, you know, a troublemaker talking up, you know, we wouldn't have got anywhere without the people who were mm. having, you know, taking on these really uncomfortable conversations. None of us want to have because we all wish it didn't happen. Yeah, right? you're not, not going to approach it sensitively. You're, yeah. You know, it's not going to happen. You, yeah. you will approach it in a sensitive manner and that's demonstrated by the fact that you're up here asking yes. us about it as well. You are going to be mindful when you're talking about this stuff and it may cause discomfort, um, but as Tara said, you'll be causing discomfort to the people who probably need it yeah. and it's not going to have a shade on the actual experiences that you've already had. So that discomfort in the right place and at the right time is really important and what, what can actually lead to creation of change as well. Yeah, I, and I, I think on the, on the issue of how violence, um, domestic violence specifically, is understood, I think we've, as a nation, 
evolved very slowly culturally from even the terminology mm. that we used. So that even you know, 20, 30 years ago, we talked about a domestic, yeah. as if there was a fight mm. with a house. <laughs> and yeah. mm. the domestic became domestic violence, and the domestic violence became family violence. violence. But now we're calling it violence against women and children, which it yeah. mainly is, largely is. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in naming it, I mean, it's uncomfortable because we keep on pushing the boundaries, and we need to. Mm. As Tara said, mm. we need to make people uncomfortable with a very uncomfortable topic because if we don't talk about it, we don't shake it up, it will continue. Mm. Mm. I mean, if we shake it up enough, it's going to agitate someone who is a victim or a survivor enough to think, this is my chance, this is my moment. It's, it becomes a catalyst. It becomes a catalyst when you shake it up enough. I, I really think that on many levels. And just like with racism, mm. the people who are most uncomfortable hearing it are racists. Yeah. And I think with, when you're talking about violence against women and children, the people in the room who are most uncomfortable negotiating it are perpetrators. Mm. So, and we don't want to play into their power by not talking about it. Mm. On, on this topic, I just want to make one more short comment, which is that when, um, during the big storm that happened, again, it was sort of pre-Me Too, but not depending on, you know, it was pre the viral Me Too. Yeah. But um, when all these headlines were going down, and some of them were just hard mm. and awful headlines to suddenly see about something you really didn't want to talk to anyone about. Um, I got a call from a friend of mine whose 10-year-old um, girl had been sexually assaulted. And she hadn't known this about me because I didn't talk about it with people. You know, it wasn't kind of my introduction. Um, and she found this out about me and she said, if this has happened to Tara too, it means I can be anyone, I can do anything. She saw someone living their life proud and strong and not being defined by that thing, and that 10-year-old girl needed to see that. So there's a lot of power in what we're doing. It's not for everyone, it's, it's not for everyone, and I absolutely acknowledge that, but there is power in it. And when people say, oh, telling our own stories, and they belittle it, no, you don't get it. You haven't talked to those people, you haven't seen their faces, and how much of a difference it can make to individual lives. So it's, it's only one of the ways in which we will change things, but God, it's a powerful one. So thank you. Hi, I'd just like to ask around um, getting support, because I do a lot of advocacy work, and I know through my own, my own experiences of uh, harassment and sexual harassment, and I've heard a lot of stories from my community, um, it's it's very hard to get support and get your message out there. Mm. You know, doing stuff through social media helps a lot. Um, it's just finding that support, getting your message across. How can I do that in a sensitive way? Because obviously I'm talking about stuff that is probably very insensitive or comes across as insensitive to people. So finding support for you. So finding, finding support for me. Yeah. Social media is this... Oh, great and terrible beast. It's, you know, it's great in the sense that you can tell your story and get, you know, and put it out there, but it leaves you so open to abuse and trolling and harassment at the same time. It can be great for finding support and finding other communities. It can also be terrible at the same time. Um, I, yeah, for, in terms of finding support there, are, and again, different, we have to recognise when, in my work, some of the support services we recommend I'm, I don't personally like. They're, you know, some are better than others. Uh, they're like beyond blue and that kind of stuff. They're not always the best when it comes to helping um, different people from different communities. So 
it's, you know, I would say the internet in some cases, I would say relying on your friends and family and that kind of stuff, it's, it depends on what you're after to an extent. It's really, really hard to find support um, that can be effective for you and it's not always, generic services in my opinion aren't always the best. Yeah. They're not really good at dealing with specific um, experiences and particularly like the experiences I've had can't help you know, the big services are so generic, they're not always helpful. And I think we need to talk about that more too. Mm. Um, what about both of you? Yeah, look, I think online, you know, support groups on you know, mm. media platforms like so that are closed, mm. those groups yeah. can, can be useful and can be relatively safe spaces. But I would also, I guess, um, monitor how much I wanted to share on those closed groups as well. Yeah. I don't think you can replace one-to-one counselling and support. And I think mm. if there is an opportunity for that, having both, one that's available 24 hours, which is your online group, mm. one that you can actually have a physical appointment with, is good for your mental health and well-being as well. Yeah, and you have to be careful about the boundaries you have when hearing these stories coming in, yeah. Thank you, Melissa, for your advocacy, and I, I see what you're doing, and it, we need more people doing the kind of work you're doing. Mm. Um, I'm sorry that it's sometimes hard and hard in the trans community and hard in feminism and uh, imperfect. Uh, I will say that you found a really good room here. You know, the <laughs> fact that, like, this is a great space um, because of the people who make it so. And uh, I, I would say the Queen Victoria Women's Centre is so on it and the Feminist yeah. Writers Festival is so on it, they probably have already, right now, a bunch of links to potential places you can go. I hope not. If not, I know they'll, do, they'll start typing. They will now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have, I think, I have a few. I think, yeah. you know, you can say it, they're imperfect and that is unfortunately true, but there are some resources and also, like, just the amazing people we're around right now. Like, yeah. that's the people I've met online, the people I've met in this room and rooms like it are the people that have helped me to get through and perhaps that might be the case for you as well. Mm. And also the different, yeah, face-to-face -face counselling is brilliant. Phone counselling is good. You can get counselling online if you're more comfortable in those mediums. So there are those different options available too. I know that um, some of my friends are less comfortable with face-to-face, -face, so they would prefer to have discussions yeah. online through a chat room. So there are those different options too. Yeah. Um, in regards to social media, um, I find myself censoring myself a lot. Yep. Um, just to avoid potential backlash. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you negotiate being an advocate and expressing your viewpoint with the possibility of trolling, the possibility of online violence and potential mm -hmm. real-life violence um, and threats? Uh, how do you deal with that? How do you um, make those decisions? Everyone up here's got that. that you know. I, I think it. I mean, I mean, I think it can vary from person to person. In in, in a word, you can mm. you can decide what battles you want to fight. You know, mm. not not everything is up there for for the taking. Is it pick your battles? Yeah. So pick mm. your battles. Disable comments is a great one. Um, mm. And often if you even often if even if you're writing for an online journal, you can actually request them to not have mm. comments on that article as well. Mm. If that if that helps your mental health, which has helped mine, um, or just you know, choose what you put on your personal page, what you put on your public page. You know, you can make those little individual choices as well, because sadly we do live in a world where um, people come after your personhood. 
regardless of whether you're talking about a generic issue, they'll always make it personal. So I think it's, yeah, playing it smarter, being strategic about what you post, where you post it, um, and then yeah, and deciding in the first place if you really want to engage. I personally don't in, engage in thread arguments at all. I never have. I don't have the time or the interest, actually. I'd rather You're not sleep. getting paid for it. I'd rather yeah. sleep, personally. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think disabling comments has been really, really helpful. And blocking, the power of the block. I don't think we should underestimate that on Twitter and otherwise. So, yeah. Yeah. And when I say, sorry, you're not getting paid for it, it, it comes back for me to that because the hours that you sink into educating oh, yeah. someone online, yeah. particularly when they don't want to be educated, they're not there to learn something different, they're there to fight. How much time do you sink into that versus doing worthwhile things? And that's yeah. me with my feminist manager's hat on, so the work I do when I look after other women. I, a lot of the time, look after their social media profiles for them. I'll do it for free for friends of mine or members of my community to the Slut Wolf Melbourne page. We don't have the time for this. We'd rather be out there doing actual work. So we will, you know, use that block button, ban people from the page, you know, whatever else it involves to actually get our work done because they're hurdles in that situation. And so we have to create safe spaces. Yeah. What about you, Tara? Um, yeah, I, well, I, yeah, I produced this documentary last year on cyber hate mm. because this um, has become such a central and relevant topic, particularly, well, for people in all kinds of advocacy, human mm -hmm. rights advocacy um, across all different areas, but feminists also getting it in particularly mm -hmm. sexualized ways. Um, you know, the rape threat, the rape death threat being. Uh, you know, so common now that mm -hmm. it's it's just like uh, it's just the go-to for someone. Um, I want to say someone. They are someone. They are Tara. They're someone, even though they're doing this stuff. They seem like they're not mm -hmm. even real people sometimes. Um, so, I would say that you just have to keep um, seeing how you're doing and asking why am I doing this. I've, I've got a great. Um, I've got a great little thing on my desktop. It's just a saying, and it's, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something like, I don't have to accept the invitation to every fight or some, something along those lines. And I sometimes just remind myself, when I see someone write something very, very inflammatory or horrible, I kind of go, what, if anything, will I do with that? Maybe nothing. Mm. Maybe I just like, no. Nah. You're really, okay. you're really trying hard, but not today. Not today, but Satan. Exactly. Not today, <laughs> not today Satan. But, um, but other times, I think, yeah, look, for me, actually, I do want to respond, and I have a right to do that. And um, a lot of the narrative around when that came out, like it was a year or so ago, uh, and it changes, the narrative always changes, but it's often very victim-blamey, and what was happening at that time was kind of like, you know, if you respond or retweet ab abuse, you're just as bad as the abuser and kind of like that you'd done something mm -hmm. wrong and asked to be abused. That, that idea hasn't quite gone away, but it was a very big focus at the time mm -hmm. and now it's shifted to other things. And part of the point of the documentary was just to show like it doesn't, if someone wants to abuse you, they will keep finding They'll find ways. a way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it's not your fault. You haven't done something wrong. You haven't articulated yourself badly. You haven't been at fault. You haven't broken any laws by existing mm. and speaking. Mm. Someone has chosen to abuse you, and sometimes in a criminal, you know, legally criminal yes. way. And just to keep the focus on the perpetrator mm. and say, you know. So I think that you have to just keep managing, like, is this okay for me right now? I don't have to. You know, when, mm. when you're baited or uh, threatened, you have some options and take those options. And sometimes it's just mute. Sometimes it's going to be report. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's going to be report to police. Yes. Um, to be clear. And you have the illegal. right to do that. 
you have the right to do that. Um, and sometimes I'm just going to shoot back something cheeky. But if I do that, it'll be for me. It won't be because they're demanding something and I believe that their demand is, uh, is valid. It'll be like, no, I feel like saying something to this. I like, and this is following in the grand footsteps of Karen Pickering, my favourite response to those is the James Van Der Beek crying face. <laughs> <laughs> Karen and I both have it saved on our desktops yeah. and we both just pop it up there when we come to trolling complaints it's, and then block them. Yeah, yeah. and that, they get... Kind of probably they get very annoyed. actually about it's that. Right, you know, like so I think you need to you need to do what you need to do for mm. you. But being silenced is just not okay. So yeah. find a way, and maybe it's online, and maybe it isn't. And mm. I've seen certainly a lot of shift with yeah. feminists who were previously online uh, or previously say columnists, mm. and yeah. then the amount of death and rape threats they got was just enough to make them go, I'm going to keep being active in my community and I'm going to do it mm. different ways. And that's really valid and, too. Just yeah. find what you have to do for you and be flexible. Mm. And also, just a final note, rely on, um, if you can and if, you ha if it's available to you, rely on your community, your friends, yes. get help in that regard. So if you have public pages, get help in moderating the comments or whatever yeah. else. People can be there and it's helped if you're a step back from it and can, can have someone deleting those comments or helping yeah. sort of let things through or let other things be blocked. Take a step back if it gets too big for you. And get I do love the mute button. Oh, yeah. It's pretty great because, like, you just... They don't know you've blocked them. You're not seeing what they're saying anymore, but you just know they keep shouting at clouds and you're, <laughs> you're just like, yep, I know it's one of those really super abusive people and that's fine. They can just keep shouting at class and stay busy and I'll keep doing my work. And um, So yeah, there's different ways to approach it. Yeah. But And there are resources out there that talk about this as yeah. well. Feminists are good at writing that stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we are almost out of time. I'm going to take a quick question. Hi. Um, like everyone else, I was a little bit of advice. Like Literally while you were talking, my friend was messaging me because um, we are curators and we went to a talk recently with some artists and one of them has been, mes one of them has been messaging her constantly afterwards. One of the artists. Yeah, like that. And she keeps um, telling him that he's making her uncomfortable but he keeps messaging her. Mm. And um, this is not the only time this type of thing's happened to her in particular but I also have another friend who has been victim of other kind of mm. sexual harassment and it doesn't, happened to me but it's happening to the people around me and they always ask me for advice and I mean what do you do like I mean specifically the person who's messaged me right now but in the other one as well I mean what what do you do there's some good technical things I would recommend mm. um, just, again it's always a choice of how you want to handle it and mm. this doesn't make the abuse go away but it can help uh, so in terms of the technical stuff I'd say switch off your notifications for mm. example, I don't need my phone to go ping, someone's tweeted you with, oh my God, you know, yeah. I don't actually need to see that or have it like the abuse arrive in my back pocket when I'm not prepared. Um, and so different sites should have various ways to turn off like messages that are private from people. The ones that are public are not, you're not able to uh, avoid. So it doesn't make that go away. But there's something about the intimacy of private messages that are very abusive or pornographic, which can be are really a big problem. Um, I also have a recommendation that um, if possible, you try to use the public online spaces when you're in a public space. And um, 
this is just a thing I practice personally and some other people find helpful. It's not for everyone, but I wouldn't, for example, check my Twitter or Facebook in the bath or yep. in like my bed, where it's like a personal, intimate space and I might not be you know, dressed. It's when I'm ready for the day and I'm here, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go out into the world and it's virtually going out to the world, but it's still going out to the world, and I'm going to get what the world has for me, which is sometimes going to be really violent and sometimes going to be really amazing. Um, but I find creating that psychological buffer is really good. So that's, it unfortunately doesn't make abusive things go away, and it's never okay, and it shouldn't be up to you to manage it. But those are some of the things that I've personally found help me to cope. And I think that's unfortunately what we sometimes need to do is kind of think of like, how am I going to survive this? Because things continue to be massively imperfect in this respect. And don't be afraid to report and block yeah. and mute. Mm. Like, yeah, block. I would have said just you can block on Instagram, so mm. I, I would definitely block it. Keep mm. a screenshot or two just for archival purposes, just in case. Yes. Um, and if it has, you know, bordered to the point of being threatening, definitely report it. Yeah. And, you, and you have evidence as well, so you can, you can do that. Mm. I mean, this is just a side note, but... Um, Yesterday, my mother again, she was telling me how when she gets people knocking at the door selling stuff in the evening and she gets at the wrong time, she has a really interesting way of dealing with them. She tells them, why are you coming here? It's my meal time. I don't come to your house. And mm. then she actually says, stay there while I get my camera. I'm going to take a photo of you and send it to the police. <laughs> that would be really effective. I love it. And they actually, literally run off. Oh, <laughs> She just told me that last night. I was like, where did she get that from? So, um, so I mean, you can always respond yep. with, I'm, I'm actually sending these messages to the police, FYI. Yep. Just see if it continues. Yep. Yeah, actually, keep, yeah. keeping evidence is important. I have a rather unfortunate folder on my computer yeah. filled yeah. with garbage and vile, horrible... Non-constructive feedback. Yeah, it's the swamp. I call it yeah. the swamp, and yeah. I stick the stuff in the swamp. And then if someone keeps popping up, especially if, like, I've already blocked them, but they pop up elsewhere and I go, hmm, that sounds like the same guy, um, I'll, I'll actually, you know, maybe that will be uh, when I will need that evidence to present a mm. full case to, uh, whether it's the police or just that platform or whatever. So... I hate doing that, though. I hate even having it in my life, mm -hmm. like preserving it in some way. But, um, but I'll do that in, um, in cases where it seems appropriate. And unfortunately, we have to always just make these choices. Am I going to spend the time doing all the blocking? Because that in itself, like I could spend a couple of hours every Monday, sometimes I do, mm -hmm. just like blocking the threatening stuff and reporting the illegal stuff. Mm. Like that can be two hours. Like no one's no one's paying. No one's paying me. It's not my job. Why is that the theme for today? No my my novel is no closer to being finished. But yeah. <laughs> um, I have reported stuff, and then I have mm. to deal with you know whatever Twitter or whatever platform getting back to me and saying oh, it doesn't breach our community standards. I'm like really okay. Let's talk about this right now. Yeah. Because, well, what are your community you know, standards? I, yeah. Really so <laughs> it takes time, but you know you just have to decide whether you want to take that time, and and there mm. are lots of great ways to handle things. You just have to find out what's right for you, I think. Um, not, not to be rude, but fuck that guy. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Like, it's... I mean, I know I have these conversations all the time. It is 2018. Where has he been yeah. for the last, you know, decade or so? Yeah. yeah. 
what does he think is going to happen out of this kind of stuff? It doesn't sound like she's blocked him yet, but yeah, forgot. And also, it's you can, whatever path you want to go down, you can just block and delete and get rid of him and screen cap it. You can first of all just say, this is making me really uncomfortable. This is not, you know, these comments aren't appropriate. And then, like, you don't need to engage in a dialogue. If you want to, fine, you can then block and delete him, call him out on his behaviour, whatever she's most comfortable with, because he's the one doing this yeah. to her. It's his fault. So she can respond in, you know, basically yes. whatever way she wants. And if that's, you know, engage in a dialogue, if that's just block him, whatever she wants. But yeah, whatever she is most comfortable with, but that behaviour isn't okay and she can remove herself from it, you know, in whatever way she wants and hopefully won't have any fallout as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, can I ask everyone to please join me in thanking us for this question? Yeah. <laughs> I also just want to give a huge shout out to our volunteers who have been so amazing in the lead up and on the day today. So Pam, after listening to that, you can really sort of see how relevant the language we use around violence and violence against women is and how the use of language against women, especially in the media, is in and of itself an act of violence um, and that we really need to be focusing on the words we use, how we use them, how we phrase things, especially in our public discourse, uh, to be able to change the way that attitudes exist to women and to violence against women. Mm. Yeah, no, I think it's so important and I think it is becoming like, there's the awareness of that and the use of language and how we use it uh, is definitely becoming, you know, more and more important and more people are becoming aware of it and starting to realise that it's not a joke and that it, it's important and it's a serious issue. Yeah, and these women are right at the forefront of writing in the fight for change. You couldn't get three better experts to talk about this topic mm. and give advice on this topic to other women. So I found this really important and I am going to try and get the full session from the live stream if I can and release it again as a full session. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now very quickly, quick switch, moving into the interview with Jessamine Gleason and Van Batham. Hope you enjoy it. It's Kel from Rights Women. I'm here with Van Batham and Jasmine Gleeson. Now, you would know Van Batham from her work with The Guardian as a social commentator, political and cultural writer, and also as a prolific theatre maker and playwright and author who's written one book and is writing her second book at the moment. Jasmine Gleeson is, femi- is a feminist academic, activist, writer and manager of other feminist writers, as well as organiser of many, many feminist events. Uh, very, very happy to be talking to you both today. I'd like to start by talking about the moment in 2015 when you two came together, because Jessamy's actually Van's manager. Jessamy. 
Yeah, look, that was, it feels like years ago now, and I guess it was. I had just started managing Van, or well, managing Karen, I think, who's another one of my clients, and the word sort of went out that uh, I was taking on other clients and organising other people, and I think, Van, you came to me mm-hmm. and said, help me, I'm, you know, I'm in dire need, and that's how most of my clients end up finding me, is a case of just hearing and, you know, knowing that they need someone to come in and really boss them around, and that was that was the case with Van. I think she came to me and said, can we have a coffee? And from that very first coffee, which was at a tea salon in Melbourne Central, we sort of went from there and Van took a photo, put it on Instagram and said, this is the person who's going to be bossing me around and managing my life. And that's what happened from that point. And, and I just dived in and started cleaning things up. Yeah, I can't I can't remember too much more, but um, Van, can you remember what actually happened? Well, I mean, my career has been difficult to manage uh, in that I find myself like a lot of people in the media community um, in this sort of relentless, uh, this relentless tsunami of obliged admin from the very nature of freelancing. I mean, I have my column at The Guardian, but that's not my only source of income. Like I also run a social media campaign consultancy. I do freelance work for books, publications. I still have a theatre career. Um, Occasionally I'm still called in to do work, film, television, radio. I do a lot of media appearances. And it's that sort of patchwork that's necessary to stitch together to have to make a living and to continue doing the work that I do. I also, because I have a really solid activist mission, am committed to a lot of different causes. Like I'm obviously a very passionate trade unionist. I, I maintain my feminist activism. I do refugee activism. I'm involved in all of these different projects for social justice and social change and managing the obligations of that kind of activist commitment as well as what I need to do to feed myself um, is really onerous and the work that Jessamy had been doing which I know that she really approaches as an activist contribution as well like maximizing the ability of feminists and and other activists to participate in public life and to run like self-sustaining in in careers and enterprises is really important and it was just a very natural relationship and it's been great because the involvement of Jessamy and the other sort of feminists in our extent in our extended professional circle like I have a feminist accountant who Jessamy introduced me to who understands like the very complex financial demands of how I run my life has made me a lot more productive like my productivity has increased enormously and that's meant that I've been able to take on all kinds of different projects and and get myself around to do the things that I think are really important. So you've both just talked then a lot about the core of your activism. So you're both very, it seems to be what drives both of you, Uh, not just feminism, it seems to be a a generalised search for equality of human rights and that intersectionality in feminism as well, particularly with your writing, Jessamy. I want to know when you both worked out that you were going to be an activist, that it was something you couldn't deny inside of yourself. I I came of age, I, I was born in 1974 and I was the only child that my parents had. My parents were older um, when they had me, which at that time was 33, which was considered incredibly old. My parents were both working class people who were highly intelligent, very well read and had never had any educational opportunities. Both of them had left school when they were 15 and they were very determined that their only child would have opportunities they didn't have. And this obviously coincided with the great golden age of social policy in Australia uh, where 
the universities had opened up and uh, the quality of state school was excellent and those kind of enfranchisements had been made of families like mine within the community to enjoy like an equality of opportunity. And my parents really encouraged my education. Um, for my dad in particular, my father, I think, had wanted a son because he understood the world in gendered terms. And when my mother had me, my father was sort of forced to recalibrate his expectations and sort of went through a process of rationalisation where he was like, actually, this is fine. Like, girls can do anything. And um, was incredibly encouraging and supportive of the work that I, that you know, of the the work that I wanted to do, of um, the way I wished to express myself and the vocational calling that I had. I mean, I knew from very very young that I wanted to be a writer, and that's how I expressed myself most powerfully. But certainly, because of the family that I was from, and because I was a girl as well, I I realised very early on at school that there were prejudices and injustices that affected me in some ways. That I, they affected my friends in different ways, and certainly I had that very sort of solid sense of a need to collectivise and organise and mobilise in defence of rights. My parents were both trade union members. They never joined a political party but certainly had they were true believers, like they believed in the mission of the Australian Labor Party and were Labor voters their entire life. And certainly that understanding uh, in provided a context in which I understood that I had a political contribution to make and that I was entitled to make even if I was a girl, even if I was a bogan, even if I went to state school. And certainly by the time I got to university, I was predisposed to participation in activism and as the first in family to go to university, um, I really embraced the whole experience of what I could do there. And certainly there, like I, I had this really like life-changing experience when I came to my first sort of inter-campus um, political event where I was a delegate to the National Union of Students. I'd run in the student elections because I wanted to book the bands and came down to Melbourne Uni and found myself in a broad left meeting where the most privileged people I had ever met in my life were lecturing me about the oppression of the working class in the way that they also silenced and excluded me from speaking and spoke down to me as if I was some kind of dumb peasant uh, because I hadn't read the books that they did or, or had the detail um, and the particular kind of, as it turned out, accelerationist pseudo-leftism that they embraced. And it really was quite confronting to me to look at the reality of the limitation of my class experience, even when I was in a forum that was discussing in quite explicit terms what class was and how it operated. And I think on the basis of that meeting, I mean, there was this girl in the $700 code who described herself as an archivist. And I thought she said archivist and she meant activist. And, um, and there was just something really consolidating for my instincts in that meeting that was, I'm going to take everything you value and destroy it and expose you for the fraud who you are. This is my sacred mission in life. And um, and I've retained that sacred mission ever since, often at, you know, quite um, personal detriment and discomfort. But there's a saying in my family, my dad used to say it all the time, it was like, Van, there are worse things than pain. And when that's your motto, um, yes, you don't. You don't lack a, a certain daring do in some fora. What you just described there sounds exactly like mansplaining. <laughs> yes, except it was left splaining. Oh, it was really, it was really insulting. Somebody in the same meeting, somebody turned around and went, "So you go to university in a mining town? Like, what's to do?" And I just, yeah, started sharpening the pitchforks and the and the petrol bombs. And um, 
and it, it was really very confronting and I had that experience throughout student politics. Like I was really, I just never met people like that before and that kind of money and entitlement because I'd never seen it. I mean, I went to state school and I went to the University of Wollongong at the time. It had the highest percentage of students from the lowest socioeconomic background and overwhelming majority of us were first in family and we were really making it up as we went along and to sort of confront that these were not theoretical concerns that the experience of uh, the experience of class and privilege really did codify in people a, a coercive behavior that predisposed them to a leadership that on a character or a talent level they weren't really suited to nor deserved was really was really very interesting for me and of course you know the activist experience is to make a lot of mistakes and my activist journey is very long um and i realized the importance after coming at politics from quite an instinctive sense of injustice that the reading is actually really important and if you want to call yourself a marxist you really got to do the work Che Guevara said you can't make a revolution in a democratic society because as long as there's a pretense of popular involvement, you are literally betraying the people if you if you organise and take up arms because peaceful means have not been exhausted for social change. It takes a particular kind of really hard commitment to think through the policy implications and the planning and the strategy for actually achieving a society that's based on the collectivist principles we say we want. And you, Jasmine, where does your activism come from? Uh, completely different place. I thought I would have a very different answer to um, Van. So I didn't, I grew up in sort of middle class family um, with working class backgrounds um, from my parents, uh, working class, middle class, but I'm from the country. So I never, there were limited opportunities for activism, marching down the streets, that kind of stuff. Uh, lots of the activism that I was encouraged into growing up was letter writing and things of that kind of degree. And um, so coming down to Melbourne and experiencing, you know, and I moved down here in 2006, so over a decade ago and experiencing those kind of marches on the streets. And that kind of stuff was my first real exposure to what activism looked like, like on the ground. And um, so to actually have those opportunities available was when I thought, oh, maybe I could do this too. But for me, it's always been a combination of um, wanting to study it in the first place. So that was where it all started, studying it. And then, you know, when I started my PhD, realizing I could get my feet wet in different areas and jump in and actually do something at the same time. So studying feminism in one way and then actually being exposed to it and, um, you know, performing it in different um, in different capacity. And so to, it's always been for me straddling the, that very fine line of activist and academic and being immersed in a field whilst also trying to, you know, do it at the same time. And it always for me started with gender equality and then had the rest come alongside that. So the class politics and that have come out a bit later which has been interesting because um again my parents my mum was very much working class my dad was very much you know um more middle class and so we had a lot of different discussions around this particularly from my mum growing up having these discussions of who was voting and why were they voting and who should join the union and that kind of stuff and my dad being a bit more um recalcitrant to an extent or just not wanting to necessarily have those discussions as openly which is fine but um seeing how those opinions have changed and evolved over time and being a part of that myself has been really good and really interesting and so you know when 
uh, Van and I, we did the Women's March earlier this year. You know, it was the first time that my mum and my sister sort of came down and participated with me, which was really beautiful kind of moment to have that happen, the Women's March and, um, you know, Women's Day and that kind of stuff. So it was it was really lovely because we didn't we don't have that much in the country and it's stuff that I would love to see happen, you know, up where I'm from in Wodonga and um, to have those kind of debates and discussions and I've been able to go back and have those occasionally when things are on but to really get them involved has been really beautiful and so for me it's um, much more personal kind of pushes from my mum to have these things kind of happen or for me to get involved and also study it at the same time. So it's um, informed all of your writing Uh, the activism element of both of you Uh, so going back to you Van everything you just described that's what your next book is about isn't it is that Uh, am I right about that well the book I'm writing on at the moment is non-fiction which even though I write 800 words of non-fiction in the Guardian every week is an incredible challenge because obviously I come from um, a creative background the last book I did was about teenage girls and witchcraft Uh, so and a girl who turns into a bear spoiler alert but um I am writing a book that's essentially about uh, about 100 years of macroeconomic policy and where the left have won and where the left have lost and looking particular, in particular at the way that an organised neoliberal movement operated internationally to make a long march through the institutions and co-opt dominant narratives about social experience in order to gain control of, uh, you know, the most profound economic restructuring of our society since the Second World War. And I I mean, because what I've... The internet has been a really interesting experience for me because it's sort of broadened um, my caucus in that I have these discussions on Twitter and Facebook and have come out of, you know, the particular part of the left that I'm from, which is a trade union left that is also very intellectual and having conversations about what does the policy look like? How do we make the policy happen? Where do we build the momentum for the policy? How do we achieve um, progressive social change and institute a, you know, reinstitute a collectivist paradigm based on egalitarianism in Australia? And I've found that in the discussions that I have with people who identify themselves as being left-wing, that that there isn't a, a knowledge of the discourse and there isn't a knowledge of the history and there isn't a confidence in, uh, in the economics or necessarily a knowledge of economic detail that can inform people to resource the movement in their own activism. And so I saw a need to create a book to go right, this is 200 years of modern capitalism. These are the events of, these are the events that have occurred within the, the capitalist paradigm. This is, these are the economic fights that we fought and won and these are the ones that we lost. This is the failure of the command and control economy of the Soviet Union, which is why a kind of vanguardist Leninism is is not the way that we build um, the the kind of egalitarian community we want to be part of. Let me explain to you about all of these other thinkers and their intersections and the way that did actually deliver the most incredible redistribution of wealth that created, you know, the possibility of social egalitarianism in the World War II to, to 1975 period and why in 1975 the neoliberals were able to gain purchase over the economy and deliver as in 
2018, like record inequality, like we are going back to the level of social division and economic inequality and the fundamental inherent injustice that comes with that as a result of their activism and and in a democracy. And because I, I mentioned this just because I've been reading um, – Chauvara all week and going through guerrilla warfare, which is you know a favourite because you know I fight guerrilla wars all the time, um, it, and it really is that understanding that in a democracy, words are weapons and messaging is is armament, and the way that we communicate and where and the way that we use platforms is the way that we we fight the the struggles of you know, of, of taking apart the paradigm of, at the moment, neoliberalism and unearned uh, privilege and inequality. And that's really got to be the mission that we're focused on. And there are a number of social actors who we have to have those conversations with and march alongside if we're actually going to deliver the things that we want. So that's really what the book is about. And the chapter that I've just finished is about the demonisation of the unemployed and how absolutely crucial that has been in terms of establishing a cultural and legislative framework that has uh, that has enabled inequality to prosper. And it's looking at those narratives and those manipulations that really, you know, unlock the opportunities for a generation that's trying to build, uh, re-establish a more equitable economy and get back to like a curtain socialist, social democratic collectivist paradigm is that we've we've actually got to look at where those uh, discourses were seeded, how they were done, how that kind of activism of the new right in messaging and imaging in the publications that they shared, the fact that they were printing their own textbooks and supplying, supplying them free to schools and universities, the way that they actually controlled appointments of economists in universities and at treasury and things like that and looking at an organised activist project to change the way that people thought and to create demons out of innocence, that's actually the kind of stuff that we need to pay attention to if we're serious about readjusting the levers in our favour. And I get super duper frustrated by people who, you know, who who lecture me with their good intentions and and yet aren't part of a of a coordinated collectivist movement that is multi-directional, intersectional and inclusive and actually deals with the fact that the way that we distribute equality in society is through the economy. And um and it's that that frustration does spill over into parts of my life quite often. <laughs> <laughs> and for you, Jesmy, it comes out in a different way. You're dissecting gender and the way women are represented and the feminist movement through digital and social media, aren't you? Yes. And how that has impacted uh, the growth and expansion of that movement. Can you talk about that reason? It's fascinating. So can you please have a talk about that? Yeah, sure. So um, it's it's academic. It's um, a completely different sort of field and it was uh, like I always – wanted to do academia but it wasn't until I got to you know the postgrad level that I realized that I could make that political that um I could tear it down and say you know academy and you know these kind of writings it's not you know it's not objective it's political you can make this a political project you can explicitly say this is going to be political I'm not objective I'm going to be reflexive about my work what I do and get in there and make sure that what I'm actually writing can be read by people so it can be free to charge it can um it's you know available it will be available online and the recommendations and outcomes I have are actually going to be applicable for activists and that kind of stuff and um, so it, it is or it's going to be and that was always, it, you know, 
as of the first sort of two months into my PhD, I knew what I wanted the outcomes to look like. I knew what I wanted it to be. And the topic itself, um, so how women or how feminists and women's groups challenge representations of women in the mainstream media. It was always like, I just, I have a media and comms background. So I've, my undergrad was in media and comms. And to me, it was a case of looking at what these representations are, but importantly, what we could actually do to challenge them and change them. So I didn't want, there was this brilliant quote that I came across in sort of the first six months of the PhD. And to paraphrase it, it was something like, we don't need another doleful catalogue of, um, you know, what we've tried to change or misogyny. Like we need to actually know what these outcomes or what we can do that will change these kinds of things. We don't need any more research saying misogyny and the patriarchy exist. Like we, we know that we know it, it. We've been doing this work for, you know, decades. We know that it exists. What can we actually, do to change this kind of stuff or what kind of stuff and you know what kind of works and projects are out there that have already been done to change this and so that's what I chose to research was um, three projects specifically within Australia that look to challenge these representations and it was just a case of finding three that worked for me but also because the ones that I chose were um, all concerning white women and they were also um they were mostly run by white women as well, white, straight, middle-class women. So being quite political and explicit about when I examined these, why that was the case. So why is it that the ones that had received this mainstream attention and, you know, had therefore come to my attention and that I'd been able to look at were, you know, not that intersectional. And that was one of the findings of my research was that really when we have these big kind of campaigns, a lot of them concern representations of white women and the outcry that we hear about in the media to do with further media representations is always around, you know, white, straight, middle-class women, cis women. So what what is happening with that and why is that of concern to, you know, fem- feminists in Australia as opposed to other representations which can be just as problematic but we usually don't hear about and we definitely don't have big campaigns or, you know, social media hashtags or anything like that as a result. So that was, for me, sort of the political motivations behind the PhD and why I wanted to do it. I was never just there to... To get the title like that's that's nice and it gives me credit and opens up different events to me in which hopefully I can further push the kind of messages that you know and the outcomes of my actual research so it gives me a certain degree of leverage and credibility but I only really wish to use that in order to keep talking about the findings of the research and to be able to keep doing the research yeah one of the the case studies you did in one of your papers was about destroy the joint and uh, the lack of inclusiveness and intersectionality that was coming out. So Destroy the Joint was actually a fantastic reaction to a horrible Alan Jones comment, Um, but then it became something else. Do you want to talk about that and talk about the inclusive problem in feminism? I, look, I'd love to, and I mean, I should say as well, like I know and really get on with a lot of people behind the story that destroy the joint and I full, I support it. I think it's great. Um, and Van can probably talk about this to an extent as well because we've both been supporters of destroy the joint. It's it's um, what we were kind of talking about before this. So there's that critique there of wanting to always tear down a movement because it's not inclusive enough, right? And there are always, that there is never going to be a perfect feminist movement. And so my 
critiques of destroy the joint, there's a balance between my critiques of destroy the joint as, you know, a woman of color and saying this isn't inclusive enough and having other critiques in the PhD saying this isn't inclusive enough. And then at the same time, wanting it to continue and wanting to build it to be better. And so needing to balance, you know, the, the concern and destroy the joint is there for a specific type of woman. It's there for, you know, middle-class white cis women of, you know, maybe 35 plus, you know, even my mum's age, like it's there and it's built for a very specific cause and it does it really, really well. But it also is, you know, it needs to continually revisit what it may be missing and support other groups that, you know, don't do this kind of stuff. So specifically with the Destroy the Joints Counting Dead Women project and then also Celeste Little's project that built off that Counting Dead Aboriginal Women. So opening up the kind of projects that they're doing to really acknowledge intersectionality and the paper that I wrote was basically about that and the feelings that some campaigners and activists inside of Destroy the Joint had towards their lack of intersectionality and inclusivity. Mm. And did you want to say something about that too, Van? Oh, look, I mean, I think Jessamy's point is correct that there is never going to be a perfect movement and I think that people who become obsessed with... um, I mean, I talk about that paper a lot about the lateral violence of organising in non-hierarchical spaces and the tendency of groups that are marginalised and disempowered to attack other people who are marginalised and disempowered within that space because they exhibit um, a perceptible comparative level of privilege. And when I say, like, it's often a perception. Um, And I find this particularly when we look at um, in Australia, because the dialogue around intersectionality is dominated by middle class women, there's a lot of discussion about inclusivity that never addresses class or um, or economic difference or economic forms of exclusion. And I always find that I, f- I find that a microaggression. Um, and this is the thing: like we can we can admit that everybody. Uh, is conditioned in their activism by the experiences that they've developed to that point. There's a necessity for an honest dialogue to occur without fear or shame around inclusivity, that inclusivity actually has to be multidirectional um, and not um, – and and but that, that dialogue can obviously be conditioned by the individual oppressions that the participants experience um, and not everybody – not everybody has uh, a perfect ideological grasp of what feminism is, what it can represent, how it functions organisationally. And that's okay because it is actually an ongoing process. What we have to be mindful of as a movement always is are we here to build equality, to liberate women and non-binary people from the oppressions of gender or are we here to constantly neck one another and take our tension out on our comrades as opposed to our real enemy? My priority is dismantling the system of patriarchy, which I can tell you is absolutely enmeshed within the capitalist system. So my, like, overriding, um, you know, activist motivation is to build socialism um, as a form of social participation that creates structural opportunities for equality in the absolute bedrock of its social organisation and dispersal of resources to people from each according to their ability to each according to their need as someone suggested some time ago. And certainly, like, I get very frustrated from the circular nature of conversations of feminists attacking other feminists. I would rather move on. I would rather support uh, the... I would rather provide as much 
support to the most marginalised groups through building up collective structures for their participation. Change is actually led by a great grumping mass of people who perhaps a tiny few have coordinated or mobilised at some point, but it doesn't actually occur without that in a democracy without that mass of people. And I think we have to look at things like the marriage equality campaign as being an excellent demonstration of just how uh, that that occurred not because, you know, a vanguard of people with impeccable politics in a small room relentlessly interrogated their own perfection and that radiated out to the community, but the people were prepared to have conversations with people who were not like them, who did not share the beliefs that they shared, that did not did not necessarily have the have families that looked like theirs or values or communities that they understood, but were prepared to have conversations about what was right and good and inclusive and loving and kind and people responded to that on a mass scale and that's how we achieve that particular kind of social change. But I worked for the CFMU when I was going through university. I had a job there working on a history project and I worked for these two like ancient communists who had been veterans of the 1949 minor strikes and who had seen and done everything Um this old bloke, Freddie Moore, turned to me and he said, because, you know, I was very young and impassioned and idealistic, and he said, Van, always look over your shoulder because if the people aren't behind you, the revolution's not happening today. It was literally the best piece of advice I could have heard. And, you know, that's why my activism is in the mass media. That's why my activism is a dialogue about the... the um, is, is, is a dialogue about going to where the majority of people are and and advancing a dialogue that brings them into a discussion about where we're going as a community, where we're going as a society, and not about what I want or you want or what, you know, a tiny activist cadre wants, but what a majority of people can recognise as in their best interest. Uh, so you were commenting before that the digital space has opened your world up a bit in terms of your ability to get a voice out, your entire research involves the impact of the digital space Mm -hmm. what do you see as being the most positive impact on activism and feminism of the digital space and the most negative and we all know about trolling Mm -hmm. I want to go a bit deeper than that if we can uh Quickly, quickly, briefly and broadly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, being able to connect with one another, being able to hear those dialogues. So being able to hear what other people are saying and being able to find out and research. I'm a researcher. So to use it for research, be able to hear other people's accounts, be able to reach out and connect with them when possible, when people have the facilities, when they're able to get online and actually do so. And also being able to recognise not everyone's voices are easily represented online, just the same as offline. Not everyone's on there and we need to take that into account when we are reaching out and connecting with others as well that would be my answer yeah uh i think the thing i've most gotten out of the digital space is being able to appreciate where the gaps in my own knowledge are in terms of you know various discourses and insights um it's created a resource for me to access experts, which is what I find the most rewarding thing about social media. The extraordinary miracle of the internet is access to a diversity of media. And I read 
I think we worked out, like I read 200 articles a day, like I absorb so much information because it's available to me and I can track discourses and follow the people I admire and, and I think that's the really incredible thing about social media. The other thing social media has revealed to me is where the gaps and silences are in other people's understanding of politics and activism and as a person who's a professional communicator, the role that I can play as an activist in using my communication skills to bridge the expertise of others on one side, the expertise I don't have, with a community that wants insight and doesn't know where to look. And certainly I think that's been the great boon. And for left-wing people in particular, like we are visible and you can see the great triumphs of the feminist campaigns of just feminism being something that people can see, not something that's taking place in an enforced marginalised space or spaces created by the marginalisations of patriarchy. That democratisation of media and conversation is revolutionary and transformative. And, of course, the forces of the status quo, like misogynists, neoliberals, of course they're going to try and poison the waters of a river that we're feeding from and um, and being prepared for that. It's just another scene. It's just another battlefront in the class war as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, the internet causes me a lot of problems and a lot of stress on an individual level. But on a political level, I, can, I, I have come to appreciate that the kind of conflagrations that I um, ignite online, and this happens to me continually, is actually significant in that I'm being, like, if people are fighting you, it's because you are participating in a, in a discursive confrontation that alarms them. And I want capitalism to be afraid of me. I want patriarchy to quake at my words. And, um, and therefore I have to read the things that happen to me as just symptomatic of the death throes of the old world and uh, trumpets for the new wonderful to speak to both of you. I wish we had more time to go much deeper into your writing and maybe we can do this again sometime to actually take it a bit further but thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so um, that's it for the Feminist Writers Festival Melbourne sessions but very soon we're going to be bringing you what, Pam? Well, from Sydney, uh, the second Feminist Writers Festival. That's right. So from the 1st to the 3rd of November, uh, the Feminist Writers Festival, in collaboration with University of Technology, Sydney Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion, are going to be throwing a three-day Feminist Writers Festival event featuring 13 sessions with over 40 speakers and those tickets are currently now available and those speakers include people like Anita Heiss, Tracy Spicer, Anne Summers, Ruby Mm. Hamad, Rebecca Shaw, like the list is unbelievable. I am so excited to be recording this event. And can you believe it, Kel? Once again, I'm going to miss it. I know! I'm going to be in Perth for the uh, West Coast Fiction Festival. And, um, you know, why do these things always happen at once? I don't know. Uh, Anyway. We're we're like ships in the night, Pamela Cook. We are. But luckily you're recording. Yes, yes, I am. So please go to www.feministwritersfestival.com to check out the program, the artists, and pick up your tickets for this event. Uh, Remember, Feminist Writers Festival in Sydney from the 1st to the 3rd of November. Go and check it out and don't miss it because some of those speakers have a lot of great things to say. You can also find us at Rights for Women, the website, www.rightsforwomen.com. 
And we're also at uh, Facebook at Rights for Women and Twitter and Instagram at W4W Podcast. And the Feminist Writers Festival wishes to thank the Victorian Government for crucial and generous funding. Overland, UWAP and Gender and Sexuality Studies at Deakin University for panel and artist support. Queen Victoria Women's Centre and Loop for venue support, as well as to acknowledge the Kulin Nation on whose land our Victorian festival events were held. Thank you to everyone who made these very important and special events happen. Yay, I think that wraps us up. Yay. Okay, see you Pam.